Hey, folks, you're listening to the free version of the Ring of Fire radio podcast. If you like our material, if you like what we say in the free version, you're going to love what we say in the member version. Why? Because it's twice as long as the free version. In fact, it's actually three times as long as the free version. It includes the free version and then two more radio hours of programming without commercials. Plus, once you become a member, you have access to 10 years worth of archives. Yes, you heard it right. Over 10 years worth of archives. So check it out. ROFpodcast.com. Just a couple of change, uh, jingling change a day, and you will get the full show. And you will help support this program. ROFpodcast.com. In the meantime, thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. On today's show, Dominic Renfrey from the Center for Constitutional Rights and activist Ann Whitehat will join us to discuss a new report and lawsuit against the American Legislative Exchange Council. Climatologist Michael Mann will join us to discuss COP25, how we can hold big polluters liable for destroying the climate. Heather Digby Parton will be here to help me run down Another huge week in news and our progressive candidate spotlight this week will be with Kena Collins, who's running for Congress in Illinois' 7th District. If you're listening to the radio right now, you should know that there's a free one-hour podcast, Ring of Fire Radio on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever your podcasts are found. And there's also a member show. You can support Ring of Fire by becoming a member, getting our three-hour radio show without commercials, and access to over a decade of archives. Go to ROFpodcast.com to sign up. Help me run down a massive week in news. Heather Digby Parton from Salon. So, Heather, uh, it has been, obviously, another uh, insane week. Of course, the... The top line of this week has to be what's happening with impeachment. It is a historical process, and um, I am quite convinced that it's going to have um, political implications, um, uh, both from an electoral standpoint, uh, materially. Um, I think it's going to have implications, at least it's going to maybe somewhat slow this i mean for a short period of time the role in the senate in terms of appointing judges um this week the uh, impeachment hearings went to the judiciary committee they received a report from the intelligence committee outlining the uh, potential uh, articles of impeachment at least in regards to ukraine and uh, the judiciary committee had Four law professors testify, three of whom were called by the Democrats, one of whom was called by the Republicans, to testify on whether the facts as found by the Intelligence Committee, which no one really refutes in any way, constitute a high crime 
uh, and misdemeanor uh, or bribery or whatever it is that would cross the threshold of being worthy of impeachment. So, uh, Digby, let's start there. Give me your sense of of that hearing, which took place on, I guess it was Wednesday. Um, well, I mean, I thought it was it was necessary. I mean, I think, and this is true. This was true for the for the Clinton uh, impeachment hearings as well. They bring in the experts to sort of lay out the constitutional basis for impeachment, and yeah, as a way to sort of lay the predicate for looking, you know, for writing articles according to that. And they did the same thing then. And I think it was it's important. It's important for the record whether or not it has any persuasive power. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much people pay attention. I don't know how important it is for on a political basis uh, to sort of have that kind of hearing. But I think it's pretty necessary, and I think it's important to sort of get that stuff out there and get people talking about it and sort of laying down the groundwork. This was interesting in that they did have one, um, you know, Trump defending um you know, expert who also was a, a an expert in the Clinton impeachment, who was Jonathan Turley. Now, interestingly, he was uh, he was a reluctant. He said he had, in 1998. He said that he was a uh, you know someone who had voted for Clinton and liked him very much, but he'd reluctantly concluded that he needed to be impeached, and of course took the opposite tack with Trump, saying he didn't really like him and everybody was mad and his dog didn't like him, et cetera, et cetera. But he had come to the conclusion that there wasn't enough. Uh, evidence uh, to to actually impeach him. So, I mean, he's played that role before, um, and that was part of the, the the role that he played certainly this week. Um, so, it, to answer your question, I, I mean, I think it, I found it fascinating. I'm sure other political junkies did. I'm sure that legal scholars, you know, law students, et cetera, did. Uh, I don't know how important it is in the in the great scheme of things, although there were it did sort of give us some hints about where the Judiciary Committee is going in that it discussed in some length the idea of perhaps folding in the Mueller investigation obstruction charges, which I think I, I'm hopeful that they actually are going to do that. I mean, that is a case that's laid out with testimony under oath by Trump's own people, including his White House counsel, Don McGahn. You know, that is that it, you know, Mueller put that report together clearly with the intention that it would be the basis of impeachment charges on obstruction of justice. It would be an absolute, you know, political malpractice, in my view, to leave that on the table and not bring that in, not to mention that it's the predicate in many ways for what Trump did in Ukraine. It's, you know, their bookends. He welcomed the interference in 2016. He, you know, was sort of let off the hook by this idea that they can't, you know, charge a president uh, for while he's a, you know you can't charge a president a sitting president with a crime, and so he went out and committed another crime as a sitting president. I mean that whole thing I think works very well as kind of a timeline on the way, on Trump's behavior in this regard. So hopefully that kind of signal that we got indicates that they are going to use that Mueller material, and you know I think you and I've talked about this many times. 
we'd like them to use a whole bunch of other materials. <laughs> there's a, there's a right. lot of stuff out there. So at the very least, you know, I'm, I, I, I got a little bit of a glimmer of hope that this wasn't just going to be limited to this very narrow issue of Ukraine, which is totally impeachable. I mean, I don't deny that in any way, but there's more to it, and I think it's important to lay that out for the American people. Um, and, you know, I don't have any hope they'll actually convict him in the Senate, but nonetheless, this case is going to be yeah, it's going to be something all Americans are going to be paying attention to over the next few yep. months. It would be really nice if the the whole story got out. Right. Or even even a quarter of the story got out. I mean, I, yeah. I you know, uh, and, and, and I, I want to talk about some of the specifics that I noticed at the, the hearing as well. But I continue to feel that there is um, I, I, even more so that there is um, increasingly just more and more missed opportunities by the Democrats because of their sort of terror at their own shadow. Um, it's clear after watching what impeachment is doing to the White House and to uh, Trump that this should have begun months ago. Uh, it's also clear to me that there's no reason not to continue it. I mean, they're going to rush to this vote. And, and, and I want to speak uh, to the to the rush uh, question in a moment and rush only because, like you say, I don't think they're dealing with even a quarter of what they could be impeaching Donald Trump for. And I think there is value in going through all of it. Frankly, uh, I'm of the mind now that you should uh, you shouldn't bring this to the Senate until, uh, uh, you know, late spring uh, so that, A, you're not interfering with the Democratic primary uh, and B, you know, you're, uh, you're you're forcing you can actually sort of dictate um, uh, to Mick, uh, Mitch McConnell to some extent, you know, when he's got to deal with this thing. Um, and and frankly, you know, uh, let them drag it out in the Senate. It keeps them from from, you know, uh, confirming more rubber stamping more judges. <laughs> Uh, frankly, honestly, I mean, anything that that, yeah. that ties him up in this way, I think is good. All right, well, let's take a break. When we come back, there's a couple of uh, moments in the hearings that I found uh, really uh, fascinating, surprisingly so. I, um, you know, we were debating as to whether we would do live coverage of this on the majority report. We're going to be doing live coverage on Monday when they announce the articles of impeachment, because I think it's uh, rather historic. Uh, but I was surprised, frankly, we didn't end up doing the coverage on Wednesday. Uh, but I was surprised at the um, interest I had in that, in that testimony, because there was obviously no new facts. But there was, uh, in my mind, some uh, very good explanations as to what uh, what rises to the level of impeachment. And in fact, what we even mean by high crimes and misdemeanors. We'll take a quick break. We'll talk more about that when we return. Sam Cedar on Ring of Fire. I'm talking to the great Digby. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar here with Digby. So, Heather, uh, when we left off, we were talking about these uh, hearings that took place uh, earlier this week in, in, in impeachment in general. Uh, this week we had hearings that involved four law professors, three of whom called by the Democrats, one of whom called by the Republicans, to talk about sort of the um, the concept of impeachment and whether – 
the facts as presented and found in the intelligence committee, uh, this, the the House Intelligence Committee, regarding the relationship we have with Ukraine and particularly Donald Trump leveraging U.S. aid for his own benefit in the 2020 election. Um, there was a couple of things that stuck out with me. One was uh, one of the law professors, Feldman from, uh, I think it was Feldman from, from Harvard, was talking about what a high crime and misdemeanor was. And I was always under the impression that high crime was a, 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 an adjective that was modifying the word crime, mm-hmm. uh, as in we need a really big crime. But in fact, uh, but in fact, that's not what it turns out to be at all. That uh, high crimes was a concept that came from British impeachment, which, of course, is where our impeachment comes from. Uh, they developed this idea back almost before there was a United States or just as there was a, a nascent one. Um, and high crime means a crime that is committed by the president, by someone who is on high um, and, and specifically because. Uh, as we know, as a practical matter, we cannot indict a sitting president because of the relationship between the president, the Department of Justice and the Office of Legal Counsel. And so I found that fascinating uh, because I always thought that meant that the bar for the crime itself had to be high. No, it's the position of the person who is involved in impeachment. Um, also, what I, what came out during that was the concept of bribery. There was no bribery as a legal statute at that time. In regards to the president, this came out, I think it was um, um, uh, uh, Pamela Carlin uh, from Stanford who made this point that um, this is exactly bribery. And she gave a great example as to why the argument that somehow because they never gave the announcement that uh, Joe Biden was being investigated and because the money was ultimately frozen, why that has no bearing whatsoever. She gave the example of if you were to get pulled over by a police officer for speeding and the police officer came up to your, your car door and said, look, you were speeding, but if you give me 20 bucks, I'm not going to give you a ticket. You look in your pocket and you're like, I don't have 20 bucks. If the cop says, all right, forget it, just go ahead. They're still guilty of soliciting a bribe. <laughs> They're still guilty of bribery, even though the bribe didn't come off. And I would argue that in this instance, the even better analogy is the cop goes up to the car. He asks for the 20 bucks. As you reach in your pocket for the 20 bucks, his sergeant pulls up and gets out of the car and goes, hey, Sully, how's it going? Everything okay here? And the guy's like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. Go ahead, driver. You can move along now. Because Donald Trump got caught. He got caught because he, he heard there was a whistleblower and and they didn't release it until days after they knew there was a whistleblower and days after the uh, the House Intelligence Committee started their hearings, uh, their investigation into this. So that's the, the more apt analogy. The other thing that uh, came out in this is that even the Republican uh, witness, Turley, uh, has written in the past in a, a Wall Street Journal op-ed, I think it was, I don't know how many years ago it was, um, that... You need not actually commit a crime to be impeached. So even if one was to argue that it, what he did was not illegal, it still uh, can be worthy of impeachment. And then he made a really an example about this being rushed by comparing it to the Johnson impeachment, which he said, this is nearly as rushed as that one. Well, the fact of the matter is there's only been three impeachments in the history of this country. And so if it's not as fast as the fastest one, and it's not as slow as the slowest one. 
it seems to me this is the median speed for an impeachment, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, there's only three of them. So uh, if it's if, if it's not one of the outliers, then I think we're we're very safely in a um, uh, a position where one could say this is perfectly appropriate in terms of a pacing. Now, I would like it to drag on more. I think there's a lot more articles of impeachment to be had. And we talked about this. But I found all of those moments uh, rather interesting, and it seems that they have just simply run out of excuses at this point. The only ones remaining, it seems to me, were also shattered this week, and I want to. I want. We're going to take a break in a bit, and, and and we'll talk about this. But you and I both know that part of the reason why impeachment was so important was because we wanted to fill the vacuum that surely the Republicans would have by creating some other type of narrative, which involved Joe Biden in 2016 and Ukraine. I mean, they weren't out there to get caught and to get Donald Trump impeached. They were out there trying to build some type of conspiracy that they could roll out now in the alternate universe where the Democrats don't impeach Donald Trump and don't have these hearings uh, so that they could roll this out now as a tool, again, for the 2020 election. And not only uh, did they, they, they fail in their leveraging Ukraine, but it turns out that Bill Barr's entire project, it, it appears, to create some type of um, nefarious plot or to uncover some nefarious plot where Donald Trump was set up and that this was all uh, part of like a Democratic stream, uh, scheme in 2016 to take down Donald Trump and part of the deep state scheme, that all fell apart this week in dramatic fashion, too. And it raises some interesting questions, not only about what the Republicans are going to do next, but just exactly who Bill Barr is, the attorney general of this country. And he is someone, folks, I think that we should all be very worried about Digby, let's come back in uh, the next hour. We will talk about Bill Barr and the, the shattering of a Republican conspiracy theory. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio. We'll be back with Digby in the next hour, and I will be back in just a moment. Coming up, how Alec created laws that may land one protester in jail for 10 years. Now the Center for Constitutional Rights is fighting back. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio. I've been down and I'm wondering why these little black clouds keep walking around me with me. And it was time that I'd rather be high. Think of what we had said about Remo's smile, but the free. Hey everyone, this is Farron Cousins, the host of Ring of Fire on YouTube.com slash The Ring of Fire. And the holiday shopping season is officially upon us. So I encourage everyone out there, if you're looking for the perfect gift for a friend, family member, or even for yourself, go to MikePapantonio.com where you can order all three of Mike's novels, Law and Disorder, Law and Vengeance, and the latest, Law and Addiction, which is tackling the opioid crisis from a perspective of both fiction with a lot of reality tied in. All three books are available right now for purchase. And if you want to get your order in before the holidays, again, go to MikePapantonio.com and place your order. These are great books written by a truly great progressive and legal mind. You do not 
want to miss out on this. So again, MikePapantonio.com. Order all three books in the Law and Disorder series. Welcome back to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. This week, the Center for Constitutional Rights released a report outlining the harm that ALEC-backed and generated laws have on communities of color. Joining us to discuss the report is Dominic Renfrey, an activist and white hat. She is facing up to 10 years in prison under one of ALEC's designed laws in Louisiana. So, Anne, uh, Dom, I know you are uh, working together and there is a there's obviously sort of a, um, I guess, an, an intersection here. And in many respects, uh, Dom, uh, what you are working at, uh, working on, I should say, in terms of your lawsuit and in terms of the report is uh, largely to expand on what Anne is going through. And so, and let's just start with um what you've been doing, what kind of activism you've been doing that has now ran you afoul of a law that started as a model law and, and now is basically, I think, I mean, and, and we, we can ask Dom about this and, of course, yourself, uh, chilling your ability to protest. But but let's start first with the activism that you have been working on. Well, yeah, I've been doing activism work for about 30 years or so, and um it's mostly a community building work. I was trained by indigenous women community organizers about 20, 30 years ago. So I've been doing this for a while. And I took a break for about nine years and I came back into this work when um, Standing Rock and the efforts to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline and, and Standing Rock started. So I took my kids up there because I'm, I'm from South Dakota. I'm a Lakota, Sichangu Lakota. So, of course, we went to Standing Rock to support our relatives. And, and it was really my, my entrance back into the organizing world again. I had been out of it for about nine years. So after Standing Rock, you know, the tail end of, stand, of the Dakota Access Pipeline is the Bayou Bridge Pipeline. And so that was coming down to South Louisiana. And so, of course, I went to go and support the organizing efforts of folks in South Louisiana. I was and we should the, say, uh, that's, uh, is, that's, is, uh, and is that where you're, you're living now? Yeah, I've been there for about 10 years now. And so I was asked to be on the uh, Indigenous Women's Advisory Council for the pipeline resistance camp that we called Lue La Vie, which means water is life in French. So uh, we had property, 11 acres of property that we defended against the Bayou Bridge pipeline. We forced them to go around our property because we organized resistance. And proud to say that we are the only landowners who forced the Bayou Bridge pipeline to go around our property. And so resistance is good, okay? It's successful, and you can protect your land from eminent domain by organizing a resistance. And because our work was so successful, Alec came into the picture um, like they've been doing around the country. And it's an, it's an effort by the oil and gas industry and what I like to call basically state-sanctioned violence against women of color um, and indigenous people um, because we faced a lot of violence and repression for our work. And so, uh, Dom, I mean, tell, tell us, when, when Ann says that ALEC came in, now uh, we're talking about the American Legislative Exchange Council, which, as far as yeah. I know, and of course you guys are coming out with this, uh, you come out with this blockbuster report this week, are also engaged in a lawsuit uh, dealing with them. When Ann says that ALEC comes in uh, and, and goes after, and we, we, will, we will talk to Ann more about that, but how does 
a an organization that presumably just brings people together um, to provide information and develop model laws. How do they come after Anne? So we've really got to understand some, um, what this group is. It's been around 46 years. It really started as a means for evangelical conservative activists to to really get active into the political process and try to push uh, an agenda uh, through uh, the political sphere. And it evolved over a long period of time, in part through financial crisis, actually. It started to find itself in a natural alliance with corporations. Um, Corporations, of course, uh, want their piece of political power, too. So we see in the 90s, these groups start to come together. ALEC facilitates access to these lawmakers. And, and companies pay a pretty penny to get that access. And what they start to do is draft these laws in secret rooms together in hotels like the one that has uh, happened this week here in Phoenix. They get in these rooms and they draft these laws, which are very self-serving. They serve the interests of the paying customers, which are the companies. So what Anne's story shows is that when we see people standing up for clean water, Uh, clean air, clean land, treaty rights for indigenous people. Well, that often brushes up against profit margin. Companies are not usually not in support of that. So we see the American Legislative Exchange Council doing what it does, sucking up these emerging kind of radical right-wing ideas, platforming them through Alex events where they bring thousands of lawmakers and corporate uh, corporations and conservatives together and giving a platform to these ideas, and then behind closed doors, drafting these model laws, which allow these lawmakers to then go back to their various states, literally download a copy of this law, and the only thing that they have to do is fill in the name of the state that they're in, and then pass that through their legislature. So beginning in 2017, we see um, right after, literally the day after, the uh, Standing Rock resistance camp was cleared in, in early, uh, mid-February 2017. We see Oklahoma House of Representatives uh, Scott Biggs decides, and he says on record, uh, yes, we're, we're passing a new law here um, because, because of the Standing Rock protest. And then we see Alec um, absorb that idea, spread it out nationally. We see um, Louisiana in 2018, um, have a bill presented to the uh, House there, um, led by an ALEC member, um, and it gets, it gets passed, and it severely ups the penalties on people that were otherwise just engaging in peaceful protests, and those things just used to be dealt with as a misdemeanor offense. And now we see, um, see what's happened. It's an intense criminalization of just, um, honestly, in my view, uh, a good history in America of, of, of peaceful resistance to, um, to things like fossil fuel extraction. So that's what, that's what they do. They come in, take these ideas that they see springing up in other places, and give them a platform and spread them out nationally um, very, very quickly. Um, we're, in, we're in Arizona. This is the home of FB 1070, um, which effectively empowered all law enforcement to racially profile black and brown communities here and force what they call self-deportation, um, which uh, helped fund um, the prof- uh, support the profit margins of Alex members who are running private 
detention centers, because, of course, it led to a lot of people being sent into detention, and that's very much um, Alex's model. Force a, a law through that uh, provides a lot of uh, profit margin to its corporate members, and the right-wing politicians get a lot of corporate favor uh, for doing that. It's very much their cliche model. All right. Um, we're going to take a break here. When we come back, I want to um, uh, talk to uh, Ann Whitehat about what she faces in terms of like these uh, th- that uh, in terms of basically being punished uh, for successfully protesting a, uh, a, a land taking for the benefit of an oil company. And then we'll talk more about the lawsuit uh, Dom, that your uh, organization is uh, waging against Alec. Uh, we got to take a quick break. I'm Sam Cedar. This is Ring of Fire Radio. I'll be right back after this. Oh, hot sand on toes, cold sand in sleeping bags. I come to know that memories were the best things you ever had. The summer shorn, beat down on bonehead back. So far from home where the ocean stood, down dust and pine bones. Back on Ring of Fire Radio, I'm Sam Cedar. Right now I'm talking with Dom Renfrey from the Center for Constitutional Rights, an environmental activist, and Whitehat about the American Legislative Exchange Council and their attack on protests and communities of color. All right, so, Anne, in the uh, last segment, uh, you baked, basically walked us through your, um, or at least a part of your history of of activism uh, and your uh, sense that you um, uh, learned uh, both the, the the spirit and the reasons of of uh, of, of your activism came from uh, other indigenous uh, women who had taught you. Um, you told us the story of going to uh, Standing Rock and uh, and then coming back down to uh, where you now live in Louisiana to prevent the uh, taking of the uh, of a piece of property. Uh, by the Bayou Bridge Pipeline, uh, your uh, your stand there on this private property uh, prevented the Bayou by uh, the this pipeline from, from cutting through this property, and then subsequent to that, you're now are you now facing prison time because of a law that was generated by Alec and adopted by Louisiana to fight essentially, I guess, people protesting this these corporate takeovers. That's exactly what's happening. Yeah, myself and over a dozen others are are facing um, each charge as we face up to five years in prison and hard labor in in Louisiana. I'm facing uh, two charges, so I'm facing up to ten years in prison for doing exactly that. You know, um, I was uh, targeted, uh, detained without a warrant, um, and uh, and and put in jail along with a journalist who was covering the story 
and we were invited to go onto a piece of property in um, this beautiful Chafalaya Basin, which is absolutely pristine land, or it used to be, and it's you know getting covered with all these pipelines. But uh, we were invited to go out there and help them as well. They asked us to come and protect the land from the Body Bridge pipeline, which was coming through that land. They didn't have any they didn't have any agreement with the landowners to come on that land, and they were just using eminent domain to go ahead and push because in their mind it's just, it's easier for them to pay the fine than to stop. They'd rather just pay the fine and keep on going through because they know it's going to happen. So, you know, so we're facing a lot of time. We're facing a lot of time. And the law is, uh, you know, one, you know, we, I'm, I'm the lead plaintiff in the lawsuit to challenge the legality of this law in Louisiana. So, you know, we're looking at its unconstitutionality and, and also that it's so in its enforcement that folks can, law enforcement or the pipeline company can use this law to target individuals. Because you have to understand that in Louisiana, there are 125,000 miles of pipelines crisscrossing the state. So at any given moment, there are people all over those easements. They're 75 foot wide and they run hundreds of miles. So at any given moment, anybody is on an easement. So folks are violating this and don't even know it. Wow. Violating this law. So, oh. Dom, give me a sense of like what um, what uh, the the Const- the Center for Constitutional Rights has its own legal action against Alec, and and um, what w- g- give me a sense of what that action is. So, on behalf of um, Arizona groups here, uh, Mihente and Puente, um, the Black Lives Matter Phoenix Metro, um, other great local organizations here, um, we're representing those groups. To, to shine a light on, on what Alec is doing. They've really said enough is enough. As you can hear from Ann Whitehat's um, story, and also the story of black and brown voters up and down this country who've been disenfranchised by voter ID laws that, that Alec has been, had, a, had a hand in passing. Um, black and brown youth in this country who've um, been, uh, the, got on the wrong end of stand your ground um, laws like Trayvon Martin and others, um, it, it's, it's, it's down to communities of color who've decided that they are going to be their own saviors here. And they've decided that they're going to shine a light on, these, on this Alec um, and the way that Alec operates in, in this secretive way. So using um, Arizona's open meeting law, which is um, uh, intended to make sure that any laws that are created um, in the name of Arizona residents um, and voters, they, um, they should know what those proceedings are. They should know who's in the room. They should know what is discussed, see the draft laws that are like any regular democratic process. And so if we're going to see quorums, you know, a majority of Arizona committee members attending these secretive private meetings, well, these organizations have said, you know what? If they're going to go behind closed doors as a, as a majority of, of this committee or that committee, we're going to apply the open meeting law to that, which is the spirit of what that law intended. You shouldn't go and have secret spaces where laws are created and the, and the general public can't see what's happening. So that's what this litigation is all about, um, trying to make sure that they're accountable. Alec is accountable for what it's doing, and particularly the lawmakers themselves. It's time that they really took their, their oath seriously. I mean, they should be responding to everyday people and everyday citizens, not the money um, and the political favors that come from buddying up with, with corporations.
So the idea is to expose the forces that are behind that are that are essentially generating these laws uh, to make it clear to the general public um, just who stands to gain from these laws and who stands to lose. Um, and just give us a sense. We just have a, a minute or two here. Uh, give us a sense of like, you know, um, where what what is the disposition of your case at this point? You could be going to jail simply for protesting a um, uh, a corporate pipeline. What, where is the case uh, along the process? Right now, uh, several of us have been charged, and, uh, and they haven't followed through with the charges in terms of setting court dates and et cetera. That, has, that next week hasn't happened. But we're basically under that sounds for four years. We This was last year, so we have three more years to wait before they decide. You know, during the three years of the waiting period where they have to decide if they're going to formally push those charges through and go through courts and all this kind of stuff with us. After three more years, you know, we're sort of off the hook. But, you know, these laws are meant to intimidate us. They're meant to intimidate right. every single one of us who are brave enough to come out there and do do the right thing because we don't have much time left right now. With climate change going on, everybody needs to step up to the plate right now. We really need to do this. Organize. Don't be afraid to do what you have to do to change these laws and to like, do the right thing. You know, um, I, I'm hoping that I don't go to prison. Of course, I'm hoping I don't go to prison. I have three right. kids, and they, they, know, they know everything. They've read the law. They know what's going on, and we're all praying, but we're also still standing. They're still standing next to me and beside me as we go to challenge this law and on the legal side to take them to court to challenge the law. So it's not stopping me on that. Well, that's that's great, and um, and 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 I and I I hope you prevail. But I mean, Dom, this is their this is uh, the the Alec playbook, isn't it? It is to intimidate. Uh, when they're not uh, passing laws to um, uh, launch a frontal assault on our democracy, uh, they're uh, passing laws to intimidate people from pushing back on the corporate agenda that Alec is designed to um, uh, to support and to promote and to continue. Uh, we know it's Alec laws that brought us the uh, so-called right-to-work laws in Wisconsin. We've seen ALEC models laws uh, disenfranchise voters across the country in the wake of the destruction of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, the list goes on and on and on, and I think it's great that you guys are uh, taking them on. Uh, Dom, just with uh, 20 seconds left, where can people get more information about this report and this suit uh, that you guys are pursuing against ALEC? Yeah, it's online, www. Alec attacks. That's A L E C A T A C K S dot org. If you're online, following the hashtag Alec attacks, or if you want to go to the Center for Constitutional Rights website to see the report, the lawsuit, or also Anne's lawsuit, we're representing her too. And I just wanted to finish with this, Sam. We've seen this throughout 50 plus years of our history. Um, we're never going to leave people like Anne behind. Um, if you want to go out and do the right thing. Uh, groups like the Center for Constitutional Rights are going to be there with you the whole way. And we're just proud to stand alongside people like Anne. Dom Renfrey and White Hat, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Anne White Hat is an environmental activist, and Dominic Renfrey is the advocacy program manager at the Center for Constitutional Rights. When we come back, Heather Parton will join us to analyze more news from the past week that's just ahead. I'm Sam Cedar. You are listening to Ring of Fire Radio. Check out rofpodcast.com to support the show.